Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This edition is produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. My guest is Paul J. Croce, professor of history at Stanton University. In his new book, Young William James Thinking, published by John Hopkins University Press, Croce offers a developmental biography of the famous pragmatist. William James' mature thinking as a radical empiricist was formed through his experiences and intellectual curiosity as a young man. Looking for a suitable vocation that matched his intellectual interest, he explored life through art, science, travel, wide philosophical reading, and his inner world. Thematically arranged, the book looks into young James' exploration of the tension between religion and science, his speculation over the benefits and drawbacks of modern and sectarian medicine, and the wisdom of the ancient Greeks' approach to life. Through his exploration of the material and immaterial nature of reality, he navigated ill health, bouts of depression, familiar tensions, unsatisfying romantic life, and uncertainty. His ambivalent disposition caused him to put off making early commitments as he kept seeking for the meaning of life. Going from personal crisis to crisis, James developed a pluralistic approach to knowledge, a philosophy of the will, and found solace in the hope that life was worth a commitment, even if one did not know the outcome. Young William James Thinking is a book that speaks to today's restlessness and provides comfort that life may be worth living after all. Here is my conversation with Paul Croce. Now let me introduce you to the author, Paul Croce. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. Hi, Lillian. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book has gives us a, a side of William James most of us don't know anything about. It's a fascinating study of him emerging as a thinker. But first, before we get into the book, uh, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Young William, William James Thinking. Well, I first got interested in William James, not from William James, but because I was very interested as a, as a young man in, in college and in gra- early graduate school in questions about where's religion going? What's the fate of religion in the modern world? And how does it cope with the challenges of science? That's the way I understood it at the time of secularism. And uh, so I was very interested in those kinds of questions. And during my first year in graduate school, I took a religious studies seminar. I was a graduate student at Brown University in the American Studies program. So I was taking courses from different fields. And so I took this graduate school seminar, I still remember it, the, the Grammar of Faith, it was called. And it included some of the you know, major names from, from the Western canon. It had Kant and it had Hegel and it had Schleiermacher. And, um, and then there was this character, William James, the professor had included this short essay, The Will to Believe. And I found William James's response to the, the challenges of unbelief of unbelief, that is, uh, absolutely fascinating and very compelling. 
And being the only historian in the room, <laughs> because the rest were in religious studies or philosophy, they were interested in the theories themselves. And if anything, William James was this kind of American lightweight. And uh, I remember thinking, this is a really compelling theory. And the historian in me said, where did he come from? How did he develop these ideas? How does someone come to develop an idea that is so compelling, like the will to believe? What kind of background did he have? What kind of development did he have? And that got me interested in his young life, his young adulthood. And that opened up a path for me, which has become, in effect, the seeds of my two books. Uh, the first is really about the circles of influence around William James, uh, especially concerning science and religion, the circles being his, his family his teachers, and his peers. And this book that I just completed, just was published last year, is about the center of those circles, William James himself. Well, so tell me, let's talk about James's family situation. What kind of a family was he born into? Uh, what was his, what were the, 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 the whole environment of his growing up years? Yeah, he had an unusual upbringing, um, especially for the time. And uh, as we were talking a little before before this moment, now um, he was he was he he was raised in a family uh, whose whose uh, approaches to upbringing and to education and to youth and to the impulsiveness of youth have gotten more attention in the years since his time. But his family, especially his father uh, Henry James Sr., uh, was a real innovator along these lines. And I say William J Henry. I say Henry James Sr. to distinguish him from his more famous son, the novelist Henry James, who was the second born of five children. So the father was uh, someone who was uh, independently wealthy thanks to his, his own father. We're really going to multiply names here. His father was William James, the first American William James, uh, who was a businessman. And um, he tried to cut uh, Henry James, the, R. William's father, out of the will uh, because he thought he was too abstract, uh, too much of a philosopher. He wanted him to get to work and get to business work. Uh, but uh, Henry, uh, this Henry James was able to uh, break through the will and with the assistance also of his mother, who was also cut out of the will. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't like that. And uh, so this gave him an independence to explore his, his own intellectual inquiries. And he became a religious seeker. He became a, a philosopher. He became a, a popular public uh, lecturer. And uh, he became very dedicated to the raising of his children. So he was interested in, in cultivating what he called his, his children's natural spontaneity in order to encourage them to find their own ways. And if, if the proof is in the pudding, or if you're a pragmatist like William James, the practical upshot shows that he was fairly successful with his children because we have, we have not only William James, the philosopher, the psychologist, and the pioneer of, of, uh, of independent spirituality, uh, but we also have Henry James, the novelist, and the, the, the great uh, uh, feminist pioneer in, in Alice James. Plus, there were two other sons who were pioneering abolitionists and served as, as officers, and to use the language of the time, in Negro regiments during the Civil War. And in fact, one of them, Wilkinson James, even served as a second in command at the Battle of Fort Wagner, which is featured in the movie Glory. So uh, the family was, was built around independence and inquiry, and each individual 
a child finding his or her own path in life. Now, why would you write? Why write a developmental biography? I've not、uh, heard of this before. Yeah, well, my approach is to try to understand the relationship of、uh, of biography and theory. Developmental biography, to me, is a chance to look at the relationship of theory, the kind of work that is done by philosophers and religious studies people, the abstractions of theory. But that's that's kind of hard to pin down.、Um, so I'm interested in finding the relationship between that and the people who do the thinking, between between the thought and the thinker. So hence, the developmental biography is trying to understand how it is that those theories emerged within a thinker. And so、um, I think of my work as、um, uh, biography in support of theory, and theory to illuminate biography. I see them as as equal poles in my work, the theory and the biography. That's that's really that's really interesting. I I, that's kind of unusual. Let me ask you now into into the biography,、mm-hmm. uh, the Civil War. Now William James,、uh, I think, was around nineteen when the the Civil War broke out. Exactly so,、mm-hmm. and did not and did not join、uh, the military. Did not go to war,、uh, to the、mm-hmm. war. Can you、uh, can you talk about? But it was a devastating war. I mean, it was devastating, and in、yeah. so many ways, culturally,、exactly. politically. How did the the war at that age that he was,、um, mm-hmm. and he didn't volunteer? What did? How did it shape, or what kind of sense of the world did it give him? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it is kind of a puzzle. Why exactly he didn't he didn't serve? Because he clearly was supporting the northern side. He clearly was supporting abolitionism.、And、this has been a big controversy in the studies, and most people, just about everyone else looking at this, has looked at him as a coward. That he just he he shrank from service in the war, and in fact, his will to believe and his emphasis on courage and impulsiveness later in life are sort of compensations for that. That's the dominant narrative. And I always I think about I think about that、uh, that essay or what he talked about the the moral equivalent of war. Exactly so. Yeah, yeah, and and that that could be seen and that has been seen as an example of this part of his、uh, the t- the toughness. Of the later William James overcoming the fact that he wasn't tough enough in the 1860s. So、um, when I, when I examined this and I actually wrote a separate article on this and I have a short ver- a short expression of this in my、uh, first chapter in the in the、uh, young William James thinking, but the whole article explains it more. I look at it in terms of what we were just talking about. I look at it in terms of the family dynamic, that when the war broke out in April of 18 1861. The Henry James, the father now, the father Henry James, was actually against the war because he felt that it is not against that purulent ooze of slavery, as he put it. And he gave a Fourth of July speech in Newport, Rhode Island, where they were living at the time, against the war because he said, unless the war is a, is 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 for the moral cause. Of ending slavery, it's not worth it. And he said he did not want any of his children to sacrifice to sacrifice their lives before they had a chance to find. And his, you know, this is good romantic language. Before they had a chance to find their own Elizabeth, <laughs> and to be able to have their own lives, and to develop their own lives, and to support the kinds of ideas that he was so very committed to. He had this idealistic framework in mind. 
he was a follower of Emanuel Swedenborg, the, 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 the empirical mystic from the 18th century who had a large influence on the Romantic era, especially in particular on, on Henry James. So he, he wanted to see what he called at the time science to be able to stop us from engaging in these mere like moves on a chessboard wars that just were for political purposes. And he felt that science, what we would call now the social sciences, would be able to understand how it is that humans relate to each other and stop this madness. And so he didn't want his children going into war. So as, as he put it, the coats of, I'm pulling on the coats of my, of my, my older sons, William and Henry, who were, who were at that point of age to go to war. Fortunately, the fabric is strong, so I'm able to hold them fast. But then, mm. then in September of 1861, when Lincoln, after a, after a summer of long thinking about the purpose of the war, the war, after all, was not to end slavery at first. Lincoln avowedly said, I would, I would keep slavery or I would end slavery. The point is to union, but I would keep slavery if it would keep the union. But in the summer of 1862, he began to rethink that. And by, by September of 1862, he, he decided and he said, I'm going to make this into a war against slavery. And that's when he announced that he would declare the Emancipation Proclamation in January of, that, of 1863. And, okay, so, and, so let me ask you, so let me, let me, let me ask you about, about uh, James, uh, William James. Did mm -hmm. William James write about, write about why he didn't go to the war, or is this what you've constructed from, from reading uh, He's written very little about this, uh, but the, during that week in September when, when Lincoln made the announcement for the Emancipation Proclamation, his third, son, uh, third brother, Wilkinson James, the one that I mentioned actually did end yes. up serving in the Negro Regiment, as he used the language of the time, uh, he enlisted that week when Lincoln made the announcement. And so I, I take that as evidence that the, that the family as a whole became committed to that son and then the next son when he became of age well, he was actually a little underage uh, robertson james uh, who also served as an officer in a negro regiment the massachusetts 55th uh, when they two those two served then the question is still there well then why didn't the other two brothers serve but at this point william was already committed to his scientific education and, the, and, the, and so I infer that because the father was very committed both to abolitionism and to what he called science, and recognize that that's not modern professional science, but anyway, he was very committed to the idea of taking on scientific inquiries to try to lead society in, in right ways, as he called it, uh, that, that that was reason enough for William not to serve. Now, he can still be faulted for not you know, defying his father and serving anyway, but then there's also, there was also a law at the time that when a family had had two uh, uh, children serving in the war, that they would that the, the government would not enlist a, a third son. And so there were social reasons. There were reasons, uh, intellectual reasons, as mentioned, about the ideas of science in the family. Uh, there was the commitment of the brothers. There was the commitment that the father had to independence of childhood spontaneity. And the oldest son, William, was committed to science now, very much satisfying the, 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 fam the sort of the family business of, of intellectual inquiry. 
And the young and the second son, Henry, was already publishing, uh, it, who would become a novelist. He was already writing short stories. So I read this as as a way to shed more light on how it is that William, when he was of prime age to serve, did not serve. So I can see some evidence that he showed a lack of willingness or maybe even a lack of courage. But I, there's, a whole, there's a range of other contextual reasons, intellectual, social, and political, uh, why he didn't serve during the war. Okay, now we've got, we've got a young man here mm -hmm. who is coming from an, an elite, affluent background. Yeah. He has his whole life ahead of him. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, he's broadly committed to science. Mostly he's more committed to improving the lot of humanity, mm -hmm. uh, making, uh, you know, uh, bringing knowledge to bear and making uh, things better for human for human society. Mm -hmm. That's his primary. That's his, that's still, his father's message. Okay. Yeah. So, but he's still, so he, but he's committed to science broadly, broadly and loosely defined because he's still trying to figure out what science. And then he's also got all these other interests, you know, philosophy and art. And mm -hmm. he's interested in, in many, many things. Yes. So let's talk about his his pursuit of a vocation, trying to identify what he's going to do with his life. And this yes. is mostly in his 20s. Yes. And the fact that at the he also has to make a break with his father on certain things, mm -hmm. but not everything. Right. Uh, so can you talk about his process of identifying what his vocation is going to be mm -hmm. and his father and the break that he has to make from with his father? Right. It was not an absolute break. Yeah, uh, that's true. But I think it's the it's the break every every child has to has to make with their parent at some point in life. And he has to find his own way, even if his own way would be his own version of his father's way. Right. <laughs> Which is I th is my interpretation of the path that he ended up taking, and that that includes this shift in understanding of science, because he entered scientific school in uh, September of eighteen sixty one imbued with his father's idea of science, encouraged by his father to enter into scientific education, encouraged, as mentioned, in relation to the war as well. But once he got there, he found a very different science. And so as he begins to study that science, this begins to create tensions within it. Well, what exactly is science? And is science a matter of, of careful methodological inquiry on the path toward what we would call professional science? Or is science this kind of improvement of humanity and philosophical type inquiry. And, and as, he, as he negotiates that path, it becomes to him increasingly a tension between science and religion, between the science that he's getting in school and what his father is calling science, but which is really in the, in the language of what he's learning in school is a religious impulse, is an idealistic and religious impulse. And he's weighing those two, and he's deeply torn between what religion can provide. It provides meaning. It provides purpose. It, it provides a, a way of understanding the world as a whole. And what he's getting from science, which is fidelity to facts and a methodology that is sound, that is not just operating by individual impulse. So he's weighing this, and, and he's feeling great tension between them. And... Um, this that becomes the source of his break or the degrees by degrees his break with his father 
because he says, I can, he says in 1867, I can't look at things as you do through the ontological window. He calls it the ontological window. His father's sort of, he's looking for words to try to understand. His father's calling it science and it's Swedenborgianism and it's idealism and it's kind of the, his people at school are calling it religiosity. So he, he, he labeled, he said, it's the ontological window. I just can't do that. But he, he can't fully embrace the scientific professionalism either that it seems so cold. And so um, so he, he says uh, during that same year, he says, he says, I, I am looking for some way in which there will be reason in the world. But a reason in the world, like reason and purposefulness in the world, but that, that is, is not just, just pie in the sky or is not just doctrinal or is not just idealistic, but that it also has some fidelity to facts and is also in keeping with, with the methodology of science. And here, here, this is where one of my chapters in the recent book comes in because a sideline that turned out to be central, the sideline excursions he was taking into reading the ancients and studying the ancients and looking at ancient art turns out to be his clue about looking at the world as did the Greeks in their artwork and as did the Stoics in their philosophy. And he was able to find through them a way to be naturalistic, but not doctrinal a way to look at the natural world as much as did and, as, and, and in keeping with fidelity to scientific fidelity to fact and scientific methodology, but not tied to a materialistic reductionism of modern professional science. So that gave him a clue that provided him a, a way to mediate what he increasingly called the tension between science and religion. And those, those tensions would continue with him and in, in his uh, somewhat famous uh, crises that he had. He was very troubled in his youth because he wasn't not only unsure about his professional life, what kind of job will I get? And he studied chemistry and then physics and then anatomy and then physiology and then medicine. And he finally focused on psychology, but there was no field of psychology. So I'm gonna study philosophy, but I can't get a philosophy job because I'm not doctrinal. So I'm gonna study more psychology. So, uh, so he was, he was searching for vocation, but he was also uncertain about it, as you mentioned, his relationship with his father. He was also, meanwhile, he had health concerns. He had digestive issues. He had back problems. He had eye problems. Um, and when he, he went on a, he, tr he thought he would try uh, natural history. He went on an expedition to Brazil for almost a year in 1865, 1866. And he, he, he thought, well, that will be at least naturalistic, but it, it's not as, as tied uh, to uh, the kind of materialistic science that you were getting in physiology and chemistry that he was studying. And uh, when, he, when he went there, he, he found that, uh, oh, I'm too much of a philosopher. <laughs> he found that just collecting specimens just didn't scratch his itch. So he had this philosophical interest he came back with. But that wasn't a job, so he came back and he got his medical degree, but not to practice medicine, but in order to study psychology, because he felt, oh, we can begin to understand the human mind if we understand some physiology. So he didn't know it at the time, but his troubles and his searches to find vocation and find direction were actually paths toward increasing the range of his interests that he would then incorporate into the kind of psychology and philosophy he actually did engage in.
Okay, let me ask you now about, was James, it seems like James is representative or emblematic of a particular historical moment, mm -hmm. that he wasn't probably that unique, mm -hmm. meaning uh, science and religion controversy was really, you know, going mm -hmm. full-fledged. He, ha he had encounters on both sides of that, that debate mm -hmm. about uh, the debate about Darwinism and evolution. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and so how much of his, is he an embl emblematic of a, a particular cultural moment? Mm -hmm. And how much of his ambivalence mm -hmm. that he expressed, but this is what I see throughout the book, is ambivalence. Mm -hmm. Because he was, he would get interested in something and then he would run into something in that thought that, bothered him and he couldn't fully commit to that. Mm -hmm. So he would try something else. Yeah. Yeah. How much of, how much of his ambivalence was due to his, uh, character, you know, his, just his temperament. Mm -hmm. And how much do you think was, was it a product of the society that he was living in and the changes that he was seeing in belief systems and mm -hmm. in, in science advancing so quickly mm -hmm. and, and and, tr and and becoming very sure of it, itself. Yes, very lots of social authority in science. Right. Lots of intellectual so authority. Can you, so mm -hmm. I want to talk about that. That it, him as a, a sort of an emblematic of that period. Can you? Yes. Expand on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, he is a product of his time. His issues are issues that lots of other people are dealing with, and in particular, that kind of ground zero issue of the relation of science and religion. That was a biggie from the 1860s, and, and Darwinism was a chief part of it, but not only Darwinism. Uh, there was also Maxwell's theories and physics questions, and the, so there were a range of scientific issues that convulsed people at the time, and how are we going to square that, so to speak? How are we going to square that with our religiosity and with our traditions? And so you have, you have someone like, like Matthew Arnold saying, we can't live with religion as it is, uh, but we can't live without it either. And so there was, there was indeed a lot of searching at the time. And so he happened to be living in a town in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where a lot of the major national players were debating science and religion. So his, his very teachers were some of the ones that were figures in the national debate. And his very colleagues were some of the ones who were articulating some of the ways to mediate science and religion. So in that way, he was typical. He was not unusual in that he was party to the debates of the time. Um, now, one of the ways in which he was innovative, though, for the time is that he was one of the first to notice that this new Darwinian theory, which so many of the, the philosophers of evolution, you know, like John Fiske in his own circle, or like uh, Spencer, the British, who was so, the Englishman who was so popular in America, Herbert Spencer, um, but that they, they were advocating ways of understanding Darwin as this, haha, this will be the lever that will that will overturn uh, traditional religion, and uh, you know someone like um, like Andrew Dixon White, the, f the first president of Cornell University, would be an example of this: the warfare of science and religion, uh, and Darwinism for many of these who are promoting, uh, who were so enthusiastic about evolutionism, thought that this would be the lever that would that would do it. Um, but unlike so many of those advocates for Darwinism. James himself was also an advocate for Darwinism, but as early as 1868, so this is like, this is nine years after the publication of The Origin of Species in October of 59, uh, James was already writing about Darwin 
is a scientific theory that is based on probabilism. It's not a proof. It's a plausibility. And yet that doesn't mean it's a lesser science. It means it's, a, it's an innovative way to do science. So he, he and his friend, Charles Sanders Peirce, who would go on to develop this idea with much, even more developed ways, uh, James already began to notice as early as the 1860s, while he was still in this troubled mode and a searching mode, he already began to notice that maybe it's possible to do science without materialism. Just as he was getting clues about from the Stoics that maybe, maybe their model of being religious is a way to tap into the natural world in a way that is not also welcoming into, into that naturalistic perspective, a, sh a sheer, a sheer uh, reductionist materialism. So he was, he was part of that generation, but he was insightful enough to notice the methodology of Darwinism and use it as a clue for understanding how to do science without materialism. And I take that as something that you can, you can see shot through William James's career, whenever he talks about science, he's returning to it for its fixity of fact. Mm -hmm. He's returning to it and supporting it for its methodology. Mm -hmm. But he is not adopting the views of materialistic uh, scientists, of many of his peers. So, Well, what's interesting about that is that it's like the, the, the debate in the culture was either religion or science. And he's saying science and religion. Together, exactly. somehow, we got to make these things work together. And you just put your finger on exactly the reason that excites me about doing developmental biography. Because by looking at what he's studying in his off hours, oh, I think I'm going to read some Stoicism or look at some, some uh, Greek sculptures, or oh, I'm going to talk with my friend Charles Sanders Peirce on the, the work he's doing. That actually, those excursions away from his studies actually circled around and became central to what would become his material. And so biography and theory do really intersect in that way. And this, this also became a way for him to deal with, to cope with, to answer to the personal struggles he had that, that have been traditionally for generations called the crisis of William James. William James had this crisis, and it was it was either in 1869 or 1870 or 1871, and some people have been pinned it down to a particular day in a particular room. So my understanding is that he was going through a whole series of things that we could call crises. He was going through so many troubles, the troubles with his family, troubles with his philosophy, troubles with his vocation, troubles with his health, troubles with women. He wasn't certain that he should ever even marry. In fact, he vowed in those years to say, I will never marry because he did not want to continue on his health and his mental, what he considered his mental problem. Sounds ironic from our point of view. This guy, <laughs> he thought he was a problem and he didn't, he didn't want to marry. Uh, so he developed so much ambivalence because he was so torn about the women in his life. He was so torn about his family. He was so torn about his philosophy. He was so torn about science versus religion that he developed, you put your finger on it when you said ambivalence. Yes, he was so torn by ambivalence, but then he gradually began to notice in the 1870s, 1873, when he gets his first job, 1874, 1875, he gradually begins to realize that ambivalence, far from being just a problem, is a window into the, 
into the robustness of the world. There are so many different points of view. And my ambivalence, which I had been regarding as a problem all this, all this time, is actually a window into the range of ways in which people think. So when people accuse William James of being indecisive because he's open to so many different points of view, I say, yes, <laughs> that's right. He is open to many different points of view, and he's interested in understanding their relationship. He's interested in understanding how they're constructed. He's interested in, in understanding what he called the, the motives which lead men to philosophize. As he said. And what's interesting about this, too, is that even though he, he believed, uh, you know, he embraced science, but he also, throughout his life, because he had so many physical ailments and, and, and mental struggles, he was experimenting with what science at the time would began to, you know, say, this is just quackery, mm -hmm. mind cures, water cures, homeopathy, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. other folk medicines. He was trying all this stuff and he stayed with it for most of his life, trying these different sort of, you know, non, what we call non-scientific methods of treating ailments. Exactly so. Yeah. And, 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 and how he, and he, he continued to be able to, move between the scientific world mm -hmm. and this other world that was so embedded in his experience. Yeah. And, you know, that started right from his years when he was studying medicine and he got his degree in 1869. But you know what? While he was studying his medicine, he was, he was engaging in alternative medicine, what was called at the time sectarian medicine, because they were called sects at the time. So he was engaging in sectarian medicine and studying it and understanding it at the same time that he was getting his degree in scientific medicine. He didn't regard that as a problem, but he said in his last decade of his life, I think it was 1904, he said to a friend that I never regarded those sectarians as much of a quackery as my teachers would have, but we didn't dare say so at the time. <laughs> so he continued to do this, to engage in the sectarian medicine. And I perceive that it was more than just a sideline to him because I noticed that it's the sectarians who actually had insights about what would be called James's crises, because he had these troubles. He had these crises. They're multiple. The, the, most of the scholarship tries to, so readily to pin it to one, but he had so many. He, he's constantly referring to, I was so low, I was so down, and he says the word crisis a half a dozen times at least. But it's the sectarians who use the language of what they called crises, crises, or what the homeopaths called aggravations. And their point was that in order to heal, you need to go through the troubles. They are not instead of healing. One of the water cure uh, home, uh, hi, uh, uh, hydropaths, as they were called at the time, uh, said of diseases that they are uh, these problems, these crises, that they are healing diseases. And he says that in a letter to his brother. He says that the problems that you are having are not so serious because they are what the water cure people call crises. In other words, don't worry about it. Learn from it. And that's why I call my fourth chapter crises, plural, and construction. In fact, it's going through the problem that will actually bring the deeper insight than actually having just hunky-dory times all the time. So he wasn't just, a, the, as he would say in his last year, decade, a healthy-minded person, and he wasn't just a six-soul person, as he said in that same Varieties of Religious Experience book. He was interested in both, and he had both tendencies in him. And so by the time he reached adulthood, 
he did not answer the problems of his youth. He just learned to manage them. He just learned to cope with them. Well, you know, uh, some of his his ideas and some of the and some of the some of the sectarian medicine that you talk about mm-hmm. uh, kind of reminds me of today how uh, uh, standard medicine is embracing mind body uh, theories. Mm-hmm. You know that the that the mind uh, has a role in healing. That the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, has role in disease. Exactly so. And and, mm-hmm. and standard medicine is, you know, concerned with taking care of the symptom and getting rid of the the superficial disease. Mm-hmm. And while uh, uh, my body medicine that's coming into being right now mm-hmm. is concerned about, okay, we've got to deal with the whole person. Mm-hmm. You know, the psychology, the spirituality, the 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 whole part, their their whole social setting in order to aid healing. That's right. I think that's well put. So it's like if everything everything old is new again, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. And I, I think that's why he's enormously relevant on this topic, but I mean a number of others as well. But on this issue, the way in which contemporary medicine is turning toward um, those who are just beginning to open the door, that they, they, they call it uh, integrative medicine. Right, or functional medicine. Yeah. Or, yeah, there's all kinds of, yeah. Yeah, and those who want to open the door a little more uh, call it complementary medicine. And those who open the door fully wide, they call it integrative medicine. <laughs> right, right. And so, you know, they're even, you know, they're incorporating today, uh, standard medicine is incorporating things like, you know, acupuncture mm-hmm. and, and things that have still don't really have a firm scientific, Western scientific mm-hmm. proof. Right, right. But it's sort of like it, if it works, mm-hmm. which is very, very much like James. Mm-hmm. Hey, if it works, mm-hmm. you know that's that's that tells us something, right? And I think that illustrates what I call the difference between uh, two types of empiricism. So uh, James recognized in the materialistic scientists an experimental type of empiricism that if it's what happens in the lab, that's what we can mostly trust. What authority do you have? Well, I, have, I trust the laboratory. But James said that's important, but it's rather restrictive because the things that happen in the laboratory are not happening in everyday life. So he was also open to what he would call experiential empiricism. And it's experiential empiricism are things that happen outside the laboratory, but maybe just as valid. Now, they may also engage in things that you need to check out in the laboratory, but that's just it. He was interested. That's part of but what I was call, referring to his ambivalence before, his openness to different points of view. But he has what I, what I call a decisive ambivalence. A decisive ambivalence is the willingness to look at differences between points of view that are otherwise fighting with each other and ask, what merits does each have? And he says that of so many theories in his, in his life. He's, he's willing to look at the differences, and it shows up in this as well. So what does experimental empiricism provide for us? Well, it provides a wealth of understanding and laboratory and physiological understanding. But what does experiential empiricism provide? It provides ways in which we operate in the world in our living bodies. It provides ways in which we can't always encapsulate within a laboratory experiment. So he was open to both, just as he was open to many other boths in his life. He was interested in, in, in tough-mindedness, but also tender-mindedness. He was interested in, in understanding those religious people who felt that the world must be. And he was interested in those religious people who felt, who felt that the world may be, 
So he was interested in, in keeping what I call an unblinking approach to the world. Unblinking in the sense of don't blink out one point of view just because it isn't your own perspective and therefore it must be rather silly or misguided or maybe downright evil. But don't blink it out. Hear it out. That doesn't mean it's right. doesn't mean it's good. But don't blink it out until you give it a chance to, to see what it has to say. What is its vision? What are its values? What, are, what, are, what kind of insights and, and uh, 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 empirical clues about the world can it provide? So he, was, he had that kind of openness. What uh, uh, Charles Taylor, the philosopher Charles Taylor, calls William James, our great philosopher of the cusp. And I take that as a rather elegant way to say he was always on the boundaries. He was always liminal. He was always on the edge, willing to look at the edge between uh, one point of view and another point of view, such as the ones I just mentioned. But I take uh, Taylor's ideas a little further, and I say he wasn't just on the edge. He was willing to be unblinking and look at each side of the edge. <laughs> so uh, I, I, that's why I use the phrase, uh, he had a decisive ambivalence. What was so troubling what is, for him so early, what, it became part of his insights. Yes. What is his, what was his, uh, what did he mean by pure experience? Yeah. Well, by pure experience, he meant this, this, this idea of looking at experience as it is delivered toward you in your perceptions. So in his psychology, he uses the phrase uh, booming, buzzing confusion. And he uses that to describe the perceptions of a baby. A baby looks out on the world and, you know, they can't quite, it's just like a bunch of shapes and colors. And, you know, it's something that we might call a lampshade and something that we might call a dad who's looking over them. What, 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 there's stuff up there. Uh, and from that sort of booming, buzzing confusion, we begin to learn to discern that there are differences and we, we begin to pay attention to one part of experience over another, and we begin to put names on it. And we begin to label and we go, oh yeah, that is a lampshade, isn't it? Okay. And that is a person. Oh, and that person might help me. Okay. And I'm going to smile at that person, but not at the lampshade, by the way. And so his idea of pure experience is what he called uh, a mosaic without a frame. There, there's, there's so many experiences that come at us in the world um, so he distinguished between what he called the center of our perceptions and the periphery. And the center of our perceptions are the things that we are paying attention to. And when we pay attention, those are things that help us develop into uh, just getting around in the room so we don't bump into things. We're paying attention all the way up to and including the ideologies we develop and the artworks we create and the, the ideologies we believe in. We develop philosophies based on paying attention to what he called the sentiments of our rationality. We have impulses that lead us in a certain direction on things, and then we sure do build up a very elaborate ways of making them more and more sophisticated, more and more intricate. We're creative. And from those creativities, we develop. But he said, don't forget the origins in these pure experiences, uh, perceptions that begin in what he, the plenum. Of, of the the full battery of things that we experience early on and at and at beginning stages. Would you okay, would you can you say could you say that pure experience is pre language experience before you were able to name it and give it a frame and a, con, a conceptual framework and place it within some order 
that that's pure experience? I think that's fair. In fact, he has a nice illustration of this. And he says, if, if, you're, if you're in a house or in a field or something and you hear the rain, a storm is coming and the thunder comes and there's lightning, he says, your experience of that is not so much, oh, that is, that is thunder. Oh, and that is lightning. It is what he called, he uses a whole series of hyphens between the words to illustrate the, the sort of uh, spill out of, of perception that happens. It is silence hyphen interrupted by noise followed by, by a streak of light, of, of, light, of light in the sky. In other words, it's, it's this, and the words make it sound long, but the perception is boom. It, it happens, and you have this perceptual experience that it happens, and then we go back and put words on it. And that's why his form of what he, radical empiricism was the, the study in which he identifies this pure experience that you labeled, that you referred to. That's why he distinguishes his radical empiricism from the empiricism of the classic empiricists, of the Locks and, and, and Hume, et cetera. Because he said they emphasize uh, simple perceptions. And he, his point is we don't start with simple perceptions. We start with the plenum. Simple perceptions are the second step. That's, that's when we label it. It's the, it's those, it's those, um, it, it, it's those, it's those identifications uh, derived from the plenum of experience that he is saying uh, that pure experience is it. So that's why he's offering uh, this contrast with classical empiricism, and he calls it radical empiricism. Well, I, I want to talk about a little bit about his uh, fascination with with the ancient Greeks yeah. and. Uh, in this way, he kind of is following what's happening in, in broadly in the American culture, fascination with classic Greek and, uh, you know, the thinkers and the philosophers and the art of the classical world. And one group of thinkers that he really grabs onto that he feels provides an answer to his dilemmas is the Stoics. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about the Stoics, why James was attracted to the Stoics, and how it contributed to his philosophy of the will? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's maybe a helpful way to begin is the ways in which the Stoics are most famous. They're most famous for their morality. They emphasize this idea of uh, keeping focused on what it is that you can control, the, the inner citadel, they called it, the inner citadel, so that you cannot control what happens in the world. They called it fate. You can't control fate, but you can control your relationship to fate. And this is an idea that has, an, has had enormous uh, influence, you know, right up to uh, in the 20th century, Viktor Frankl's approach to man's search for meaning is in many ways a, a deep nod to the Stoicism. To Stoicism. And James was, was reading the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius in particular, he called him dear old Mark, <laughs> and uh, uh, Epictetus. And uh, what he found in the, in the Stoics was this idea of their morality, but also their, their logic, their, their sense of, uh, I used the word reason a while ago, as an idea that he picked up from the Stoics, because of this sense that there is reason in the world. There is some, there is some, some purpose in the world, and we may not know it. It may be beyond our ken, but there is some there is some path that the world is on. And we tap into that occasionally. 
even though we never fully grasp it. Uh, so uh, it, interestingly enough, his, the, when he introduced the word pragmatism to the world, it had been around, they had discussed it before, but, but the first statement of the, of the word pragmatism was in a lecture he gave called Philosophical Conceptions and Practical Results in 1898. And in that lecture, he introduces a, a first paragraph where he talks about the trackless forest of human experience. And I take that as something akin to what he learned from the Stoics, that there is something trackless in all of it, kind of like the pure experience we were talking about a few minutes ago. There is something trackless beyond our ken in all of reality that we cannot grasp, but we do make paths in that trackless forest. And that's no slouch. That's good stuff. That's, those are our theories. Those are our philosophies. Those are our politics. That's our artwork. But don't mistake the paths for the whole forest. There's something bigger beyond any one of us. It's great that we do that. And, and don't look down on, on those paths, but don't mistake them for the whole forest. And that's why he used this phrase again and again. His favorite phrase was, ever not quite. Ever not quite. And all that he put together, even in his own work, he considered it an, an, an arch half finished. And or all of his work that he did when um, the, his friend, uh, the painter, uh, Sarah Whitman, uh, drew a, a, painted a portrait of him in 1903, shortly before she died, just a few years before he died in 1910, um, she pictured him looking rather grave, rather serious, uh, kind of like uh, the, the, uh, uh, the religious seeker that he had become. We were talking about how he became like Henry James, but in his own way. He found his own way to be a seeker. Uh, exemplified most dramatically in the varieties of religious experience. So when she depicted him as this, this kind of seeker figure in 1903 in this portrait, she pictured him holding a book. And I remember when I looked at it, I bet when most people look at the painting, they think, oh, I wonder which book of his she chose. And she was indeed uh, a deep intellectual in her own right. And she read many of his books in manuscript and gave him very helpful commentary. So I looked at it more closely, and I looked at the painting itself uh, just shortly before I published the book. And uh, when I got up close to it, and I realized it didn't have the title of any of his own books. It had the words, ever not quite. He had picked the phrase that was so dear to him, and that she... I think she intuited that that was the best single way to summarize. If you had to summarize in a phrase what William James's life was about, it was about ever not quite. And that didn't mean being a hermit and being mystical and being distant from the world. He was more like a worldly mystic. He felt that there were uses to our uncertainties. And those uses could be we could add elements of humility to our brave expectations to be able to correct the world's ills. He, he he added um, a sense that if, if, you can, if you can have a sense of mystery, you'll be less likely to try to push your theory down someone else's throat. Hands off, he said, hands off from trying to tell other people how to think and how to live. And I think it's that ever not quite quality, that sense of appreciation of uncertainty that gave him that ability not only to be de decisively ambivalent and open to different views, it also gave him the ability to 
gave him the ability to provide clues right up to our own time about how to deal with dramatic disagreements. Because do we not have, my fellow Americans, <laughs> some rather dramatic disagreements in our own time? I think William James provides clues about how to deal with that. And that's exactly the kind of work I've turned to now that I've published my second book on William James. After these deep dives, I'm very interested in a set of projects that I've put under a label. I call it learning from people you hate. What can you learn from people that you disagree with very deeply? It doesn't have to be hate. <laughs> what can you learn from someone with values who are very different? Don't you, you don't have to agree with them. In fact, you can keep fighting them. Okay. But why do they think that way? Where do they come from? What is it in their worldviews that leads them toward that? And that will not only help you get along with others, that's nice, but it will also help you talk with them, maybe even persuade them because you understand them instead of just talking down at them. And it will also, for extra credit, for extra credit, it will also give you some humility about your own views. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, part of the, you know, what you're dealing with or talking about here is the fact that it is it is very difficult for many of us to have um, a, pol a political conver a, a, a conversation about politics or religion or whatever, yeah. you know, thing with uh, people who have different views because mm -hmm. we are constantly thinking it's either either you're right or I'm right. We can't both be right. Right. And so there's this clash, constant clash, and somebody has to win. It's sort of a win-lose sort of mentality. My way of the highway. Instead, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Instead of thinking, is there a third way? Mm -hmm. Is there a third way mm -hmm. that might reconcile some of your things and some of what I say mm -hmm. and that we can find some third way of, of, of coming to some ag agreement right. or something? And I, uh, I think... That is what's problematic today because people constantly, when they do bring up politics, they're already, before they even open their mouths, they're already in a combative uh, oppositional stance yeah. instead of an openness to, I really do want to know what you have to say and let's see where, where we line up or don't line up. Yeah. So uh, that's just a little sideline there for me, but I wanted to ask you, he wandered around a lot in his 20s. He was ambivalent. He kind of couldn't, you know, land on anything. He, there was nothing that really fitted him perfectly. So he kind of almost had to create his own. He created his own discipline. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he created his own philosophy because nothing suited him. Right. And I'm wondering um, if this is a more practical kind of question of today, because I think that your, this biography that you've written is highly instructive. Mm -hmm. I think it's not just a historic, you know, a history of, of a person, a certain person, but I think it's very instructive for today. I think it's there's a lot of wisdom in this book. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering about uh, young people today who are pushed very early to, you know, make a commitment to a path, mm -hmm. you know, a professional path. And there's a lot of pushback if you wander off that path. Well, you're wasting you know, time. You yeah. mm -hmm. Right. You're wasting time if you, you know, you did two jobs, you know, you, you had a job here and then another job here and they and they don't, they don't seem to be connected. And, mm -hmm. you know, what are you doing with your life? And, and I think there's such value in this particular, in your twenties, particularly for people to wander around some mm -hmm. 
And I get you can kind of get suspicious. I do of people who make commitments very, very early, and they don't deviate because I'm thinking, what kind of mind doesn't allow for other possibilities? So, what do you think that William James? I mean, he became a you know a great philosopher, but in his twenties, you would have thought he was just a first a late bloomer. And maybe a slacker, right? Right. <laughs> right. You know, you would probably say, "Well, he comes from money; he doesn't really have to work." Right. So, you know, he's not going to amount to anything. Yeah. He's just going to live off his parents' money for the rest of his life. So, well, he wasn't able to do that. He said, "He said by the time he reached his mid twenties, I have to consider vile lucre." <laughs> yeah, I understand that too. I saw that, but anyway. Uh, I just feel like that there's a lot here that's very alarming about James. Like, like, oh my gosh, I've seen so many people in their 20s who look just like him mm-hmm. in terms right. of their ambivalence and their struggle to figure out who they are and where they're supposed to be going. Yeah. But there's a lot of comfort in it, too. Right, right. Where do you think that comfort is coming from? The, uh, the, the comfort of, of uh, appreciating someone who's not particularly focused or efficient at the time. Yeah, it's the comfort that the comfort that even though he suffered all those crises mm-hmm. of a philosophical, religious, physical, something good came out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot to that, and the the sense of of uh, do some exploring. And uh, yes, he did have the the comfort of growing up in a in a, you know an upper middle class household. Uh, wealth enough to be able to do exploring, but there are ways to, to live more simply, uh, to allow you to explore. And I think, uh, I think his life presents a model for possibilities of not necessarily going for the most efficient path. And one of the ironies of our own time is sometimes the young people who are most efficient by the time they're 25 or 30 or 35, then they get to such, you know, disturbance about what the path they have chosen, that they go back and it ends up actually being more wasteful of time <laughs> than it would have been if they had Right, the yeah. They plateau early, plateau early, or then, yeah, begin to question things later. That's possible. Um, yeah. Plus, it depends on, on what you want to do. So he was interested in big questions. What he said, for the, the biggest, one of his appreciations for his father was that he gave him the right to think about big things. So he, he knew he wanted to think about big things. He just wasn't sure how to do that. And so if you want to do that, give yourself a big launch. If you, if you only want to do something that's very specific, it's fine to focus and just, and just realize that that's going to keep you focused for the rest of your life on that thing. But if you want, if you want breadth of understanding, if you want a range of different ideas, realize that that's going to take a while to cultivate. And realize that sometimes, as you put it, with his, his uh, having to create his own field, there was no field of psychology when he began. So there may not be fields that will be happening a generation from now in our time. So it may take some real exploring to be able to understand them. James, late in life, said to one of his students, the first lecture in psychology I ever heard was my own. <laughs> because, there wasn't, wow. because there wasn't a field. So what in our time is undiscovered that that it will take some youthful ranging of the next generation's creative people to come up with. And that's not going to happen by making a beeline. That's not going to happen by being efficient. That's going to happen by cultivating creativity. 
And James, going back to his psychology, James said the wonder of the human mind that makes it that makes us not brute intellects, as he said of you know the animal minds. The thing that makes the human mind distinctive is its capacity for spontaneity. And youth are the ones who are most adept at thinking spontaneously because they have not yet been put in boxes. Now, but you have to realize that spontaneity spontaneity leads to great creativity, but it can also lead to real flops. So be open to those potentials for creativity, but also for making mistakes and to realize that's okay too. And I think that's another message of, 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 for me, of this inquiry into a coming-of-age story. A young man who thought he himself was a flop, thought he himself should, should uh, restrict his, his uh, willingness to marry, thought himself was just an unhealthy, confused young man, but that he didn't know it at the time. He didn't know it, but he was actually cultivating a range of experiences he was cultivating a range of understandings, and he was cultivating, in his very ambivalence, a range of different points of view that would actually end up being more creative for the kinds of points of view he did develop with his decisive ambivalence. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Paul. I uh, appreciate your time today. Sure. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This was produced in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 